Now, we're beginning Jeremiah chapter 2 tonight, and I want to make some general comments about a possible structural outline for the first 20 chapters of the book. Now, I do this uh, with a measure of speculation and humility because there is no one who has solved the pattern, if there is any particular pattern here. So this is my own Suggestion, but I share it with you for what it's worth because I do think that there are some indications of credibility to what I'm saying. So let's take a look at this just briefly. In the second verse of the first chapter, you'll notice that formula, the word of the Lord came, and then it's followed by a particular phrase. And if you'll notice in that verse, The phrase is, in the days of Josiah. Now, you recall that that allowed us to date this first chapter, particularly the call narrative in the first chapter, uh, to the 13th year of Josiah, which was, as you remember, 626 B.C. Now, that formula, the word of the Lord came, is repeated in verse 4, We noted that previously, but this time then I want you also to note that presumably we're still in the days of Josiah, even though that phrase isn't repeated in the fourth verse. Because, of course, we're describing this call which came to him in the 13th year of the days of the king Josiah. So, therefore, verse 4 is continuing that presumably in the same days of Josiah. Then in verse 5, we have a couple of uh, vocabulary words that appear uh, of interest, namely this predestination or election of Jeremiah before he was in the womb and before he was born. So those terms, those Hebrew words for womb and born are in that fifth verse of chapter 1. Now, in the first verse of chapter 2, we once again have this formula that we noticed in the first chapter. The word of the Lord came, and I'm suggesting that since it's the same formula, and in fact, since it's the end of this formula in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it forms a little bracket around uh, that material. I'm going to suggest that presumably this is in the days of Josiah as well. Then in verse 2 of chapter 2, we have a different formula. We have a thus says the Lord formula. It's the first time it has appeared in the book. So we make note of that. And if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 22, it is the last time in this early section that we find that very same formula, thus says the Lord. Now, in between chapter 2 and chapter 6, in chapter 3, verse 6, We have another phrase that we've seen before. And as you look at that verse, chapter 3, verse 6, what phrase do you see there that we've had before? In the days of Josiah. So the very same formula that occurred in chapter 1, verse 2, is explicitly present in chapter 3, verse 6, and it's interesting that it's in this unit that is bracketed by the formula, thus says the Lord. 
All right, so we're, we're still in the days of Josiah through chapter 6 on my suggestion. And then in chapter 7, we come to a, a section where we have a different formula of the word of the Lord. You notice in 7.1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying. Now, in the second verse of this chapter, you'll notice that the Lord tells Jeremiah to go stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That is the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. Most everyone agrees that this is Jeremiah's famous temple sermon, delivered sometime subsequent to Josiah's Reformation. Now, Josiah's Reformation occurred five years after the prophet was called to the office of ministry, namely 621. So sometime after 621, Josiah is instructed to go and stand in the gate of the temple of the house of the Lord. I'm going to once again suggest that we're still in the days of Josiah in chapter 7. And then in 11.1, we have that formula, word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying once again, but this time we now set up a new section of the prophet of the book, the so-called confessions or plaints of Jeremiah. There are five of them all together, and they're listed there for you. And they take up sections of chapter 11 through chapter 20. Now, these plaints or confessions, a plaint is a lament. It can sometimes be uh, interpreted as a complaint, but nonetheless, it is more of a sorrowful lament. And these are specifically uh, indicated in these chapters, chapters 11 through 20. And once again, in 18.1, we have that formula, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying... And then in chapter 20, in verses 14, 15, 17, and 18, we have this vocabulary that we also had in chapter 1, verse 5. In fact, in chapter 20, we have this vocabulary duplicated, and we have it duplicated in chiastic order. Very interesting. In verse 1, verse 5 of chapter 1, The order of the Hebrew terms was womb-born. In chapter 20, verses 14 and following, it is born-womb. You'll notice the reverse pattern, the chiastic reversal. Exactly the same Hebrew terms. You find the word born in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. So it born occurs twice in chapter 20, and the word womb occurs in verse 17 and verse 18. So the word womb occurs twice. It's almost as if it's a double emphatic uh, conclusion to a section, which means that there is a, shall we say, relationship between the life of Jeremiah before he was conceived and born out of the womb and what follows from his life after he is born and out of the womb. In fact, what he is out of the womb in going through this series of Plaints and confessions and laments and declarations of his sorrow. <clears throat> In other words, we kind of bracket or, or, or set aside this unit in which the prophet not only receives his call, as God had designated him before birth in his mother's womb, but what happens to him after he receives that call, after he is born and emerges from his mother's womb, 
and has to proclaim the word of the Lord that comes to him and tell Jerusalem and Judah that their doom is sure and that, in fact, the city is going to be destroyed. So I'm making a little case here structurally for the integrity of the first 20 chapters of the book of Jeremiah uh, taking place in the days of Josiah. Now, that has its own uh, challenges and difficulties, and I admit that. But nonetheless, at this point, I'm going to point out these structural similarities and leave it at that. Because in chapter 21, verse 1, we actually change eras. We, if I'm correct, from chapter 1 to chapter 20, we have been in the era of the days of the King Josiah, which means from 640 down to 609 B.C. Now, notice the formula in chapter 21, verse 1. It is very similar to the formula that we've seen in 18.1, 11.1, and 7.1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, but the uh, verb saying is at the end of the clause. It's not right after the word Lord in the Hebrew text. So there is a bit of an ellipsis there. But nonetheless, it is similar, and it's inaugurating something that happens in a different era. Notice the name of the king in 21.1. It is King Zedekiah. He is the last king of Judah. Interesting, is it not, that we move then from the era of Josiah to the era of Zedekiah. We leave out the era of Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim. So it's almost as if he's sandwiching the beginning and ending of his ministry, isn't he? With the king who is king when he begins and the king who is king when he ends. And therefore, he uh, orders this unit in that relationship. It doesn't mean that he's leaving out Jehoiakim and so on. We're going to get enough of them from chapter 21 on because they're going to be interleaved in the rest of the book. But nonetheless, it's almost as if he introduces the book with these 20 chapters with the first king and the last king of his experience. All right, that is my suggestion for a, shall we say, broad structural pattern uh, in uh, the first 20 chapters of the book. More important, go back to chapter 2, is what is going on in this chapter itself. Now, there is a motif. There is a motif that is prominent here in the second verse of the second chapter. What would you say it is? As you read that verse, what would you say the dominant motif or theme is in that verse? What's that word betrothal suggest to you? Lisa, what's that suggest to you? A marriage, yes. There's a marriage motif here. Marriage slash betrothal. Now let's turn over to chapter 3. And notice, just as you scan the first verse, and you'll find that that's the motif of the first five verses, what do you see there? Lisa, as you scan 3-1, what do you see? A divorce. So it's a marriage again, only this time... It's a marriage that has ended in divorce. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it's a marriage with betrothal. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, it's a marriage with divorce. 
And the antithesis here is the antithesis between a steadfast, loving relationship in chapter 2, verse 2, and an adulterous or harlotrous relationship in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. So notice this unit hangs together in terms of the antithesis between a marriage betrothal and a marriage rupture. So this is a unit in itself. 2, 1 to 3, 5 is a literary unit in the book. Now, there's something else that we want to note about uh, this section, particularly chapter 2, uh, verse 2. There's a retrospective redemptive historical paradigm here. Now, what do I mean by that word retrospective? Frank, what do I mean by that word retrospective? Back is a good word. Looking back, retrospective, to look back, prospective, to look forward. Okay, so looking backwards. Okay, so what what uh, redemptive historical pattern do you see that's in the past suggested in that second verse? You still you still have the floor, Frank. If you wish, if you like to like to yield to somebody else, that's fine. Okay. Israel in the desert. Israel in the desert. It says in the wilderness. Okay, following me in the wilderness. What desert was that? Can you name that desert, Kay? The wilderness of Sinai. Sinai. Correct. So what went before they came to the wilderness of Sinai, Kay? Egypt. Egypt. What and and what and <clears throat> so what about what was going on in Egypt? Slavery. Slavery. And, and did they stay there? How, what word do we give for that release? Exodus. Yes. <laughs> so this is the Exodus motif, okay? That is their redemption from slavery, slavery in Egypt, of course, and their entrance into the wilderness. And what else is in the offing here? Terry, what's in the offing? Exodus, wilderness sojourn. One more piece of the puzzle. Loretta, are they going to stay in the wilderness? That's a journey. It's a journey. Are they going to stay in the wilderness, Loretta? Well, they're headed for the promised land. They're headed for settlement. All right, so the wilderness is a motif that's between the times, so to speak. So he uses this image about having betrothed them to himself in the wilderness because he had taken them as his bride by redeeming them from slavery, and he's expecting to settle his bride in the honeymoon suite, namely in the promised land. So he uses this image to give you the whole paradigm, all right? Because if you say, well, they followed him in the wilderness, then how did they get to the wilderness? And were they going to stay in the wilderness forever? No. You see, the marriage is going to be full circle. All right. So there's this retrospective exodus, wilderness, settlement in Canaan, settlement in the promised land motif here. That is also present in several other prophets. And so I would suggest that you sometimes in the next two weeks, weeks read Hosea 1, 2, and 3 and look for the same pattern. Look for that same redemptive historical pattern of exodus, sojourn, and settlement. Also Ezekiel 16 and 23. Look for the pattern in those two chapters. Okay, I warn you that Ezekiel 16 and 23 is graphic. I'm alerting you to that, but it is redemptive historical. So keep that in mind as you read it. All right, now, come to verse 3. And the New American Standard reads that Israel was the first of the Lord's harvest. 
Does any of your versions have first fruits there? Frank, what version are you reading? The NIV has first fruits? Okay, well, this is one place where the NIV is actually better than NASB. I hate to say that, but they're, they're <laughs> you have to tell the truth. All right, so what, what's the significance of this first fruits image? When is first fruits? Springtime. Okay, good. What else do you associate with first fruits? No. Harvest. It's the spring harvest. So we'll go back to what Robert suggested spring. What else do you associate with first fruit? Okay, what else? We're thinking in terms of Jewish ritual, Jewish calendar. What's the festival of first fruits? Pentecost. Pentecost, yes, okay. All right, so we associate this with Pentecost. That's not directly the uh, point here, but it, it, it joggles our mind a little bit. Israel is the first fruits of the harvest. Is it suggesting then that Israel is the anticipation of the greater harvest, which is the harvest of us, Gentiles, right? Is that possible? Okay. It is possible. But why then does he say evil came upon them who ate of this? Why would it be evil punishment for eating the first fruits? Well, who is supposed to eat the first fruits? The priests. The priests. Numbers chapter 18, verses 12 and 13. You don't need to turn there, but nonetheless, that's the passage which indicates that the first fruits, when they were brought to the tabernacle or the temple, they belonged to the priest. They got to eat them, not the offerer themselves. So, why is the evil coming? Because, of course, this festival, this offering has been abused, and the people are gobbling it up, so to speak. They are taking it away from the priests or they're thinking they have the same privilege that the priests had when God had forbidden that. So this is the reason he's referring to it. In other words, there is something wrong with this retrospective pattern. There's something wrong with the pattern of exodus, sojourn, and settlement. In other words, things have gone wrong after the past pattern, okay? which is what the rest of this chapter is about. Because the rest of this chapter is about what has gone wrong, and what has gone wrong is idolatry, as we will see. Now, the fourth verse has this word here, which looks like it may be a summons, and has been interpreted by many Old Testament scholars as a so-called reeve or accusation pattern, a reeve paradigm. I don't want to confuse you with the technical discussion here, but I want you to notice that the term refers in the scholar's estimate to a formal court hearing. 
God is coming into the courtroom and he's charging Israel or Judah, as the case may be, with sin. And he's going to investigate and he's going to summon his witnesses and he's going to lay his charges and accusations against them, etc., etc. Now, there are a number of elements that are supposed to constitute a reeve or a charge or a courtroom setting when God brings his people to court. And you'll notice them outlined there uh, on your handout. First of all, there's a formal summons. Second of all, there's a record of past acts of of benevolence. Third, there is an accusation. The term reeve in Hebrew means contend or accuse or charge. And fourth, there's a testimony of the witnesses, and usually the witnesses are the heavens and the earth. They are summoned as witnesses in God's case, God's covenant lawsuit, God's reeve against his disobedient people. Now, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, it is conceivable that this word here could be a legal summons. Okay, it's conceivable. Although the word reeve does not occur there. It does occur in verses 9 and following. Second of all, there is a record of past acts of benevolence. We know about this retrospective redemptive historical paradigm. Looking back in verse 2 to the exodus, the wilderness, and the settlement, those are God's benevolent acts on behalf of his people. So it is conceivable that that does fit into the pattern here in Jeremiah 2. The third is the accusations. And in verse 9, you'll see, I contend with you. At least that's the New American Standard translation of that Hebrew word reef, which means accusation or contend. So the word is there, and it would seem as if this is a formal charge. But when we come to the issue of the testimony of the witnesses, notice verse 12. In verse 12, the prophet says, be appalled, O heavens. Do you read in that verse... Any appeal to the earth. It's not there. Now, one of the liberal scholars who is heavily in favor of this Reeve pattern covenant lawsuit in the Old Testament, acknowledging that Jeremiah 2.12 does not have two witnesses, and you can't establish any matter in a court of law in Hebrew, in, in a Hebrew court of law without two witnesses, which is the reason you have to have heaven and earth in this case, okay? So, <clears throat> acknowledging that the text doesn't say earth, that liberal scholar inserted it into the text. He said, it doesn't, it doesn't fit my presupposition. There's got to be a covenant lawsuit here, and since the earth isn't there, I'll stick it in. Now, the liberals are usually taking things out of the scriptures. See, they want to amend them. They want to cha- change it and make it fit. But here's the time the guy wants to stick it in because he wants to make it fit. All right, all I need to do here is cite the best Jeremiah commentary right now on the market. That is the revised anchor Bible by Jack Lundboom. And I quote, and it's in your outline, Jeremiah 2 is therefore not a covenant lawsuit because it doesn't satisfy all the, uh, pro, all the requirements of a covenant lawsuit. Notice what this <clears throat> critical scholar says. Either in full or in part it is not a covenant lawsuit. Now, this is also true with the other alleged covenant lawsuit text in the Old Testament. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 1, 2 to 9, Hosea 4, 1 to 10, Micah 6, 1 to 8, and Psalm 50. None of those alleged examples of a reeve pattern or a covenant lawsuit contain all the four elements that are necessary for the paradigm. In other words, 
they fudge the issue. They say it's there, but that doesn't satisfy all the criteria that they say that has to be there for it to be there. And yet they still try to persuade you that it is there. This is bogus. There is no covenant lawsuit pattern in the Old Testament. This is simply a way of imposing Hittite treaty patterns on the Old Testament and saying, see, aha, it's just like the other religions around it. There is nothing in this language in any of these passages that is anything more than God calling his people to repent for disobedience. That is all it is. It is not a formal courtroom setting. Well, it doesn't satisfy your four criteria for a formal courtroom setting. So how can it be a formal courtroom setting if one of the four criteria that you say has to be there isn't there? Because, of course, you've got an agenda you're rubbing. You want to make it fit your covenant lawsuit pattern. And so you're going to twist the text, even if you've got to insert a word into it to make it fit. This isn't scholarship. This is agenda. This is ideology. It's not a reading of the text as you have it. It's a making the text fit your presupposition. Your ancient Near Eastern presupposition. Your ancient Near Eastern Hittite treaty presupposition that you're imposing upon the text. Sorry. Sorry. No cigar. Even Jack Lundboom says, no cigar. And Jack Lundboom He's not Jim Dennison. He's a better scholar than I am when it comes to the Hebrew text. So I'll stand on Jack Lundboom. Mm -hmm. And that is only four or five years old text. So it's right up to date scholarship. In fact, most of the modern Jeremiah commentaries are thumbing their nose at this suggestion that there's a covenant lawsuit in Jeremiah 2. So just ignore it. If some smart Alex says, yeah, now we come to Jeremiah 2 and we're going to look at the covenant lawsuit. You just turn you can turn them off, plug your ears up, take your earplugs, forget it, ignore them. They're not up to date. They don't have the best scholarship. All right. Verse five. Or do you have any questions or comments? Yes, Ben. I guess I'm a little confused. There's no such thing in the Old Testament as a government lawsuit. You, you find it. Okay. okay, those are, the, those are the, the passages I listed there. Those are the passages and the criteria that I gave you. Those are the criteria that I have derived from those that defend it. In other words, I'm not putting words in their mouth. This is what they say has to be there. Okay? All right, so you find it. Yes, that, yeah, that, that is my opinion. That's Jack Lundboom's opinion. That's the opinion of most modern Old Testament scholars right now. In other words, they backed off this covenant lawsuit, which was very popular in the 70s and 80s. Very popular. Lots of journal articles, lots of commentaries that have got it in it. But after they start looking at it more carefully, they've decided, no, not only are parts missing, but what we have here is genuine Prophetic rhetorical vocabulary. There is no special courtroom drama here. Pete? How about the uh, ancient Near Eastern treaties in Deuteronomy? What do you think of that? I think there are similarities, but I think also that there are holes in that argument. In other words, there are patterns, but they are not exact duplications. So it's not as if we don't gain some insights from those ancient Near Eastern patterns, but we can't impose them upon the Old Testament text 
as forming that drama. That's my point. Same way here. We can't impose covenant lawsuit pattern on the drama here. It's not here. You have to force the text to make it. (laughs) All right. This is a minor point in a fairly technical scholarly discussion, but I make the point because I think we need to be up to date with what the better scholars are saying right now about this issue. And Jack Lundboom, as I've said before, is one of the better scholars on the book of Jeremiah at this point. Verse 5. Now, in verse 5, you'll notice that we have a phrase, walked after, in the New American Standard, which is duplicated in verse 8. So we immediately have a little rhetorical or literary bracket between uh, those two verses. In between, we have another duplication. You notice in verse 6, the interrogative question, where is the Lord or where is God? That reoccurs in verse 8. Where is the Lord or where is God? Now, there's something else in verse 5 and verse 8 that is similar, although not exactly duplicated. The word delusion or vanity, they have walked after Emptiness. Some of your versions may say delusion. May Some of them may say vanity. The interesting thing about this word, and it's duplicated here, they have walked after emptiness and become empty. They've walked after delusion and become deluded. They've walked after vanity and become vain. The interesting thing about this word is it's the Hebrew word habal. Professor Sanborn? Habal. 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 I forgot Ecclesiastes. Oh, vanity. vanity and vanity. So, right. Now, yeah, that, that, it should echo with those of you in this congregation who remember Benji's sermon. Now, in other words, the point here is this word that Jeremiah uses is exactly the word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes to talk about the emptiness and the vanity and the delusion of life. It's exactly the same word. But in verse 8, he uses a different word. He uses a word which suggests no profit. It is profitless. So he changes the word, though he's paralleling the idea. They are vain, empty delusions because they profit nothing. They are profitless. They bring no benefit. All right, now what's he talking about? He's talking about those who say, where is the Lord or where is God? Notice what verse 2 says. Go back to verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. What does God say? First two words of God's statement in verse 2, where he begins to speak. What's the first two words? When he begins to speak, I remember. I remember. Well, verse 5? I mean, verse 6. Do they remember? He remembers. He remembers them. Do they remember him? He remembers when he betrothed them in the world. He remembers the exodus. He remembers the world. He remembers the settlement in the promise. Do they remember? Where is the Lord? They've forgotten. Well, 
If they don't remember him, what do they remember? Their idolatry. Their idolatry. That's what they remember. That's why they've forgotten. They have given up on where is God? But I know where Baal is. I know where my little household idol is. I know where that thing that I worship most of all in all the world is. My ego. In other words, this indictment here is a an, an antithesis to what God had done in remembering them. They have forgotten him, even to the point of saying, where is he? Where is he? And notice what is sandwiched in verses 6 and 7 between those little chiastic brackets. What does he start talking about in verse 6 and 7? Loretta, what's there? What they should have remembered. Yes, which was what? Oh, God brought them out of Egypt. There, there we go. The Exodus. What else? Keep going, Loretta. Led them through the wilderness. Led them through the wilderness. What else? Through the deserts. The pits. And brought them to the promised land. And brought them into a land of fruit and good things. Verse 7. All right, so notice. When he... When he starts in verse 2 of saying what he remembers, in verse 6 and 7, it's the reverse. They don't remember. So the antithesis between God's recollection of how gracious and benevolent he was to them and how they have spurned it, forgotten it, completely disregarded it. The greatest act of grace in the Old Testament, and they've forgotten it. The greatest act of grace in the Old Testament, and they've forgotten it. Redemption from slavery. Grace in action. Could you have any merit after that gracious action? Could you? Give me a break. Give me a break. The greatest act of God's gracious initiative. Do you want to spit in his eye and say you've got some kind of merit after that act of grace? That's exactly what they were thinking about when they were bowing down before the idols of the Gentiles or even the idols of the promised land. And we'll take that up when we get to the psychology of idolatry. But nonetheless, they have forgotten Not only that great, gracious act of God, they've forgotten how he carried them through the wilderness and fed them with bread out of heaven, water out of the rock, gave them light in the darkness, and then carried them over Jordan. They have spurned it as no prophet. But in fact, they are profitless. They are vain. The chiastic reversal here is that the antithesis between verse 2 and verses 6 and 7 is the antithesis between God making them pilgrims by his grace and them disavowing that pilgrim status by their works, by their merits. Why? Notice what they've done. They've absolutized the land. They are not pilgrims anymore. They are, they are uh, <clears throat> occupiers of the land. 
They've absolutized the city of Jerusalem. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. Jeremiah will repeat that refrain. They've absolutized the nation. We are sacrosanct. We are surrounded by the Lord. Where is the Lord? Baal will keep us. Our gods will keep us. But not the Lord who brought us out and kept us through the wilderness and brought us into this land. So the absolutization of the land is not the land of the Lord God Jehovah. It is the absolutization of the land of God Baal. It is Baal's land. Baal's land is an end in itself. And it will perpetuate itself in the absolutization of the fertility of that land. And how do you ensure the perpetual fertility of the land of Baal? You engage in sexual activities. You engage in cultic prostitution. You go and frequent sacred prostitutes. That's how you protect the fertility of the land. That's how you extend Baal's blessing in the land. That's how you worship. The absolutization of immorality with the sponsorship of the government and the state. Remember that when these kings like Ahab and Manasseh established these fertility and sex cults, they did it with government subsidies. They did it with government programs. They did it with government encouragement. They paid the Baal priests. Jezebel had 450 of them in the days of Elijah. Do you think that they earned their keep by what they worked at the at their tabern at the shrines doing? No, they were paid by Jezebel and Ahab. They were government employees. The reversal is the reversal that corrupts the whole society, including the government. <coughs> including the rulers, including those that administer the law. Well, we'll come to that in more detail as we look at the specifics of idolatry. You'll notice in verse 9 that word contend is in the Hebrew the word reeve. We've already talked about that, and you have your notes above on that. Verse 10, kittim. Some of you will have a note on where kittim is. Terry, do you have a note on where kittim is? Down. Okay. Mine says Cyprus C- and other islands. Cyprus. <clears throat> Where's Cyprus? Okay, where's Cyprus? In the uh, Mediterranean. In the Mediterranean. Close to what country? It's Greece. It's a little further away from Greece than it is from, from this one. It's closer to what country? I want Italy. No, it's Greece. further away from Italy than it is Greece. Loretta, how, what, what other country is it close to? You're not good at geography? Well, if you're going to be a Bible student, you have to get a little bit better in geography. Okay, so Cyprus, you could go to Greece. In fact, it has some connections to Greece, but it has connections more to Turkey. Turkey is right above it. In fact, the Turks invaded it years ago. There was a war in Cyprus. I can't remember whether it was the 60s or 70s. But at any rate, this name, Kittim, for Cyprus is related to one of the major ancient cities on Cyprus named Kition, K-I-T-I-O-N, southern eastern coast of Cyprus. Today, the city of Larnaca, 
Larnica, Cyprus. Now, Kay, who do you know on Larnica? You get a handout once a month. Who do you know on Larnica? Loretta? Once a month, you get a a handout. Pete, who do you know on Larnica? (laughs) The uh, mission over there from York. Well, the minister in charge is an Orthodox Presbyterian. Not anymore. What's his name? Isn't it anymore? What's his name? One piece at one stick, step at a time. What's his name? I forgot. Okay, this handout is the Mideast Reform Fellowship. Okay, so uh, you get a little handout about their work, very interesting work in the Arabic world, uh, doing you know wonderful thing in, in broadcasting the uh, gospel into Arabic languages and, and languages of other Muslim nations. Uh, so it's very, very important work. And the headquarters, at least for the leader of it, are in Larnaca, on the island of Cyprus, ancient Kittim, city of Kition in the ancient world. And who's the name of this fellow? Victor Atala. Victor Atala. But he is no longer a member of the OPC. He was until two years ago. He has joined uh, one of the, he's joined the Liberated Reformed Church of, of Holland. So he's left the OPC. Uh, but, and, and interestingly, interesting, that's the reason you see in the newsletters now uh, more Dutch names or more people coming from Holland to have the seminars and so on, uh, where he, he has been well supported and well received uh, in, the, in that denomination, and uh, they are actually uh, helping send people to train uh, wherever they have uh, little centers, whether it's in Ethiopia or in uh, uh, Cyprus or other places. All right, well, that's a, a little modern uh, <laughs> foreign mission uh, in, uh, relationship to that uh, name. Now, Kedar, the other name in this verse, where's Kedar? Black as the tents of Kedar. Arabia. It is in Arabia, yes. What part of Arabia? Our geography expert, Loretta, will tell us what... <laughs> I couldn't resist that, Loretta. <laughs> it, she, she says, come on, you got to give me an A for saying Arabia. Yes, I, but I want you to have an A+. Plus. <laughs> All right, yes, it is in Arabia. What part of Arabia? Northern Arabia, which is very stark, very bare, okay? Uh, very bleak desert. All right, so what's he doing here with this statement? Notice, he folds in this language with verse 11, has a nation changed its gods? Send to Kedar, send to Kittim. Why is he doing this? Terry, your head went up. Kittim and Kedar... East, east and west. East and west, exactly. Send to the furthest regions of the west and the furthest regions of the east. Now, not ultimately the most, but, you know, that's a long way away from Palestine. Cyprus is far west of Palestine, even though it's in the Mediterranean. And Kedar is over the ridge, over the Jordan Rift, over the Transjordanian. It's off there in the desert of the east. So, in other words, go from east to west, and see if any other nation has changed its gods like you have changed your gods. 
And that brings us to the brink of idolatry in the book of Jeremiah. We're right on the edge of idolatry. Take your breath. We want to take up the uh, concept of idolatry in the book of Jeremiah. We want to look at it in terms of general terminology and then specific and particular details. Now, as we're doing this, I'm not denying that this is also reflected in the rest of the Old Testament, but I want us to get an idea of what Jeremiah is dealing with in his time, 7th century, 626 to 586 B.C., what is the basis for God's judgment of destruction against the nation of Judah, city of Jerusalem, and the temple in that city. So let's begin to examine the vocabulary of idolatry by looking at the terms that Jeremiah uses. And in the 11th verse of this second chapter, you'll notice the word gods. And in this context, you will notice in the parallel line, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? This parallel is also present in chapter 5, verse 7. Gods who are not gods. Gods who are non-entities. Gods who are not real. They are not concrete. They are not objective. All of these adjectives which we use to describe that which is not God. But the basic antithesis here is that God is indicating the contrast, the contrast between God's supposed, alleged, but not God's, namely non-entities, non-beings. They have no existence. Now, the second passage is in chapter 10, verse 11. And here, the prophet says, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now, there's an antithesis there, too, but it's an antithesis of irony. Do you, do you catch the irony in Jeremiah's t- uh, uh, statement there? What is the claim for these gods? The claim of those that worship them, what is the claim for these gods? That they did make the That they did make the heavens and the earth. So where's the irony? No, that they will perish. They're going to perish. If the one that made the heavens and the earth made the heavens and the earth, is he going to perish along with the heavens and the earth? No. You see the irony? You see the absurdity there? <clears throat> All right. So in other words, these gods are impotent. They have no power. And he's ridiculing them. <clears throat> okay? They who think created the heavens and the earth, they don't have the power to even sustain themselves because they're going to pass away. They're going to die. They're going to perish. They're going to be destroyed. God isn't destroyed, at least a true living God. 
isn't destroyed. He doesn't perish with the creation. He's above the creation. He's greater than the creation. All right, so these gods have no reality. Now, in the next chapter, which is the best citation of this pattern, it also occurs in chapter 228, but I want you to note 1113. Jeremiah suggests something about the plethora of deities. Your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are your altars. Archaeology has discovered 800 figurines of idols in Palestine dating back to 1200 B.C. 800 little figurines of idols. During Roman times, during the time of the Roman Empire, there were hundreds of gods, gods for everything. They even had a god for a baby sucking its thumb. Well, you see, if you can't invent enough other things, then you invent gods to satisfy these other things, or at least to make them objects of these things that you desire. So Jeremiah is in a culture where there are numerous gods, as many gods as there are cities in Judah. And that, my dear friends, is a whole bunch. All right, so this vocabulary for just the gods. But he also talks about other gods. He uses the vocabulary of other gods. As you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 16, which we've already read, I pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods. Now, what's the meaning of other gods? Frank, what's an other god? It's not the true god. It is... Another one. So it's another one. All right. It's a different one. Or it may also be a foreign one. Now, we will see foreign gods in the next uh, phrase below other gods. And actually, there is a particular Hebrew word for foreign gods, and he's not using it here when he uses this phrase, other gods. And so the language here is other gods, meaning an other god than the Lord God Jehovah, a different god than the Lord God Jehovah. And in that 16th verse of chapter 1, you'll notice that they are offering sacrifices to them, or actually, as the Hebrew literally reads, burning incense. They're making a sacrifice of burning incense to these other gods. So that's one thing that they're doing with respect to these other gods. Now, in chapter 7, verse 6, we learn the second thing that they're doing. So let's take a look at that. Chapter 7, verse 6, it's also in verse 9 of that 7th chapter. What are they doing with respect to these other gods? Verse 6. Kay, do you have it? They're shedding innocent blood. And? Walking after. They are walking after. What does that suggest to you? 
walking after another god. They're walking after them. What does that suggest, Ken? Following. They're following, okay? And what does Jesus say to those that come after him, walk after him, follow after him? If you want to be... If you want to be... If you want to be... My disciple. Exactly. So, these other gods have disciples too. They have followers. They are walking after them, just like a disciple. See? All right. The disciples of the not true God. Now, verse 10 of chapter 11. Let's take a look at verse 10 of chapter 11. We notice that they are offering to these other gods. They are following or walking after being disciples of these other gods. Verse 10 of chapter 11. What are they doing there? Anyone? They are serving them. Now, keep your finger there in 11.10. And I want you to turn to 35.15 because the same phrase is used. Okay, let's turn over to chapter 35.15. You're not going to find serve in verse 15, at least in the New American Standard, but you're going to find another phrase there, which is exactly the same phrase as serve in 11.10. What do you find there? And worship. worship. All right. The word worship in 35.15 is actually the same as the word serve in 11.10. So the the uh, nuance or the meaning of serving them, they're walking after them, following after their disciples to serve them means to worship them. That's what they're doing. Serving means to worship. Now, chapter 13, verse 10. Notice the notice the sequence we're getting. Okay. They are offering to them. They are following after them. They are serving them. They are worshiping them. And now in 1310, what are they doing? They are bowing down. They are prostrating themselves before them. They are doing homage to them. You could also say they're worshiping, but notice the attitude of worship. They are actually bowing their faces to the ground before these idols. So as we put the whole paradigm together, when they serve these other gods, they are actually serving a different or another deity altogether. They are serving him by sacrificing to him. They are serving him or her by walking after, following, being a disciple of. They are serving by worshiping, bowing down, prostrating themselves to them. They are doing all of what we would define as homage and worship in obeisance to these other or different gods. Any question about any of that so far? All right, now in chapter 5, verse 13, he uses a very specific word for other God, and he actually doesn't use the same word as he uses in the, uh, in the other passages where we noted other. Chapter 5, verse 19, it shall come about when they say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods. The Hebrew word here is different than other It specifically refers to alien or strange gods, gods from other countries, from other nations, 
We want to specify what they are in a moment. But right now, Jeremiah is very much aware of the foreign cult, the foreign worship cult of other alien deities in Judah and Jerusalem in his day. All right, now the next word on our list is idols. In chapter 10, verse 14, we learn something about these idols. Notice he uses idols as distinct from gods. And it's in this 14th verse of chapter 10 that we get a little bit of that distinction. These idols are what? Man-made. They're man-made. Good. They're manufactured objects. How did you get that, Ben? From the goldsmiths. Yes, very good. From the goldsmiths. Very good. All right. So these are manufactured items. So the idol is a fabricated or manufactured or created thing. Now, in verse in chapter 14, verse 22... He uses the word idols, or it's translated idols, but it actually is not that same word as he used in chapter 10, verse 14. What does your margin say? Some of you have New American Standard. They are vanities. Professor Sanborn, what Hebrew word would that be? That is correct. It's Hevel. It's the same word as vanity of vanities in the book of Ecclesiastes. So notice what he's doing. He is once again saying that these idols, like these other gods, are nothings. They are vanities. They are emptiness. So the idols are vain. They are non-entities. Now, to chapter 8, verse 19, which gives us two types of idols. First, in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 19, he talks about foreign idols. This is the same word that he uses up above in 519 for foreign gods. In other words, these are alien or strange. These are of different nations. And the idol here is the same word that he used in 1422. They are vanities. They are nothings. So these are foreign nothings. But then he uses another word there, another phrase there in verse 19. They are graven images. Graven images. Now you'll notice that my next phrase underneath graven images is molten images. What's the difference between a graven image... And a molten image. We had molten image up above there in verse uh, 14 of chapter 10. And I didn't ask Ben to expand on that. But think about the distinction between graven and molten here. Carved and uh, uh, metal. Very good. Graven image is something that is hand fashioned. 
A molten image is something that is poured from melted metal. So the graven image is generally a carved manufactured item. It could also be a molten image that's further shaped, but nonetheless, there is a distinction between something that's poured from liquid metal and something that is carved or manufactured by hand. In chapter 10, verse 14, what does he say about these molten images? Chapter 10, verse 14. Terry? They are stupid. They are stupid. He also makes that same charge in chapter 51, verse 17. They are stupid. And in 10, 14, he talks about them as worthless again. Actually, in verse 15, he talks about them as Hebel again. They are worthless. They are vanities. But notice, he is not hesitant to talk about the stupidity of making an idol. Why does he say that? That's pretty harsh language. Call somebody stupid these days, you might actually end up in court. But Jeremiah calls these idolaters stupid. Pardon? It's illogical. It's illogical? Because a god would have to be something outside yourself or greater, so how could man make a god? Very good. Robert's got it exactly summarized. It's stupid to think that the thing you made is a God that's bigger than you. You made it. That's idiocy. Not only illogical, it's immoral. All right. Now, the last type of uh, language he uses is detestable thing, sometimes translated as idol. And the first time he uses this phrase is in chapter 4, verse 1. Put away your detested things from my presence. This is also sometimes translated abominations. But this language here, detested things, is the language of disgust. It is the language of something that is vile and loathsome, something that you would want to get rid of very quickly. So Jeremiah is saying that these idols are vile disgusting, wretched, and loathsome. But where have they been placed? Chapter 7, verse 30. Where have these detestable things been erected? Chapter 7, verse 30, parallel to chapter 32, verse 34, but let's look at 730. In the temple, they've actually placed these vile, disgusting, loathsome things in the temple of the Lord. And in a few minutes, we're going to find out what these disgusting and loathing things are. But in chapter 13, 27, there's something that goes along with bowing down before these detestable things. Chapter 13, verse 27. Adulteries. Sacred prostitution. The lewdness of your prostitution. He's referring to sacred, that is ritual, that is religious prostitution. Worshiping a god by prostitutes, both male and female prostitution. Sodomite and uh, and, uh, female, okay? All right, so when 
He talks about this detestable, vile, disgusting, loathsome thing. Notice that he's associating it with the vile practice that goes along with the adoration of the god or goddesses. Now, the last verse is in verse 18 of chapter 16, where he uses a very interesting phrase to describe these detestable things. They are carcasses. These detestable things are. Now that's detestable, isn't it? A carcass, a stinking, rotting, maggot-filled carcass. What's he doing? He's talking about the lifeless corpse. The lifeless corpse of these idols. They are as dead bodies. Stinking, smelling, loathsome, dead bodies. Detestable. So this is language of disparagement, but nonetheless, he is using all of this vocabulary to heighten our understanding of how abominable this adoration of these idols is. Now, he had mentioned foreign idolatry or foreign idols, other gods, foreign gods, foreign idols, etc. What varieties of foreign idols were being worshipped in Judah and Jerusalem during Jeremiah's day, there are at least four categories that we can identify not only from his book, but from Second Kings, which is parallel to the times of Jeremiah's book. There are Canaanite deities, and we'll enumerate those in a moment. There are Assyro-Babylonian deities, and we'll talk about them. Transjordanian de- deities. Now, when we say Assyro-Babylonian, that means they come from Mesopotamia. That comes from Assyria or Babylon, from the Tigris-Euphrates uh, <coughs> cultures uh, in that area. Transjordanian. What do I mean by Transjordanian? The other, side of the other side of the Jordan. Okay. And what n- nations are on the other side of the Jordan? Moab. Moab is one. Ammon is another. Edom is another, okay? Moab, Ammon, and Edom. They are on the other side of the Jordan River, all right? Now, the third is Egyptian. Though Egyptian gods are also involved in the catalog of idolatry that Jeremiah is familiar with. All right, let's begin with Baal. In chapter 2, verse 8, which is the chapter that we were working on this evening, you will notice that he says, the prophets prophesy by Baal. Does this echo any story you know about Baal prophets? Carrie? Elijah. Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 in the contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Very good. All right, now who is Baal? The name Baal means Lord. Means Lord. Also means husband. Now, keep that in mind because, of course, you can say you're worshiping the Lord when you're actually worshiping Baal. You say you're worshiping Jehovah when you're actually worshiping Baal because you're using the ambiguous term for Lord because Baal means Lord. And Jeremiah is going to um, uh, make parody of this marriage language. Baal is my husband. And he's already picking up on the uh, sexual imagery of the Baal call. Now, Baal is a Canaanite god. Phoenician, Syrian, Ugaritic. He is a Canaanite god. And he is a Canaanite fertility god. 
He is usually depicted in iconography with a lightning bolt in his hand. There are several statues of Baal that have him holding a lightning bolt. Why? Because he is the god of the storm and the rain and the lightning, which brings moisture and fertility to the earth. So he's a fertility god, and associated with his worship is fertility sexual ritual. That's how you ensure the ongoing fertility of the land. You imitate Baal, okay? Baal is fertilizing the land. So you have to fertilize the prostitutes, so to speak. Now, the second thing that occurs with Baal is in chapter 7, verse 9. Now, here they are offering sacrifices to Baal. And you will notice that the margin says burn incense. So the sacrifice that they're doing is burning perfumed incense at his altar. In chapter 12, verse 16, you will notice that Jeremiah says that they swear by Baal's name. Instead of swearing by the name of the Lord, they swear by Baal's name. What does it mean by swearing by Baal's name or even swearing by the name of the Lord? Do we swear by God's name properly anywhere in our culture? When? Court. In a court, when you take an oath. Okay, so this is an oath. What's being said here is taking an oath of a confession, adherence. You are promising to be Baal's disciple and adherent. You are a loyal devotee to the whole religion of Baal. And in this verse 12, 16, that there's a very antithesis of being a loyal, devoted follower of the Lord God, Jehovah. In other words, everything that we associate with devotion to God, the true God, is now attributed to Baal. Chapter 19, verse 5. Chapter 19, verse 5. What are they offering to Baal? Their sons. They are burning their children in fire to Baal. We want to talk about that a little bit later. But notice that Baal is also worshipped by infanticide, by the killing or murdering of small children. Chapter 23, verse 27, God's name is forgotten. He has been replaced by the name of Baal. And finally, in chapter 32, let's take a look at this one because this is interesting. In chapter 32, verse 29, how do they worship Baal? They offer incense to him on the roof. All right. Now, the city of Ashkelon is a Philistine city. Well, mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 604 B.C., the year after he captured Daniel and his three friends and carried them off to captivity. He had a campaign against the Philistines in which he destroyed the city of Ascalon. As archaeology has uncovered the destruction labor Ascalon in 604 B.C., they have discovered incense burners. Where do you think they found them? On the rooftops. Exactly as you see it noted here. 
burning incense on the rooftops confirmed by the archaeologist Spade. All right, now the next category or name of a, a idol or a foreign deity is the Asherim or the singular, the Asherah, which is mentioned once in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 2. Now, in that chapter, in that verse, all the prophet says is they remember their altars and their Asherim by green trees on the high hills. What is an Asherim? An Asherim or Asherah, Asherim is the plural, is a wooden pole. A wooden pole or a living tree placed near an altar and a symbol of the Canaanite mother goddess. In other words, Asherah or the Asherim are female Canaanite goddesses. Now, in chapter 2, verse 27, as a note, he mentions these wooden poles, and then he also notices that beside them are stone pillars. So the wooden pole is the female symbol, and the stone pillar is the male symbol. These are female and male fertility symbols. This is Baal's consort. Asherah is Baal's consort, or his wife, or his mistress, or his whore, or however you want to describe it. Now, that brings us to chapter 32, verse 35. Please change that in your outline to 35, not 25. <clears throat> Let's take a look at that. Chapter 32, verse 35. We notice that in chapter 19, verse 5, boys are burned in the fire. Small boys are burned in the fire to Baal. In chapter 32, verse 35, what's being burned? Sons and daughters are being burned to Moloch. Now, who is Moloch? Okay, Moloch is a Ammonite god, Transjordanian god, and he is worshipped by the offering of children to him in fire. That is also true of Chemosh, though uh, the, and Chemosh is mentioned in Jeremiah 48. But in 2 Kings chapter 3, 26 to 27, the king of Moab, because Chemosh is a Moabite god, the king of Moab offers his son in the fire, 2 Kings 3, 26 to 27. So Chemosh was also a god worshipped by offering children in the fire. Another Transjordanian god. Next, the queen of heaven. She is mentioned in chapter 7, verse 18. Who is she? Who is the queen of heaven that children of Judah are worshiping? The women need dough and make cakes for the queen of heaven. She is probably Ishtar, Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R. And she is an Assyrio-Babylonian goddess. She's the goddess of love, sex, and war in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology. She's an astral deity, that is, she's a star deity. 
And she is introduced, or worship is introduced in the days of Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. Now finally, you'll notice that there are Egyptian gods mentioned in chapter 43. They are not named, but the children of Judah who go down into Egypt and they forcibly take Jeremiah with them, worship Egyptian gods in Egypt and bring uh, God's curse upon them. All right, now very quickly, where were these gods being worshipped? In chapter 7, verse 30, and chapter 32, verse 34, they were being worshipped in the temple of the Lord. Some of these gods have been brought right into God's holy temple. The high places are shrines on heights or ridges. One of those high places was in the valley of Hinnom. It was called Tophet. And Tophet probably means oven, where they would burn their children, like in an oven, or means a drum, where in order to drown out the cries of the incinerated infant, they would beat their drums so that the mother or the father wouldn't hear the child screaming as it was being burned. The high places are places of sin in chapter 17, 3, because they are places of sacred prostitution. The hills are in the high country, like the high places. In chapter 2, verse 20, he talks about hills and under green leafy trees. Why would they have green leafy trees planted around their shrines in order to mask or hide their sexual rituals? What kind of offerings did they offer to these idols that were worshipped in Jeremiah's day? They offered incense, which is a burning perfume. They offered libations, which are drink offerings, mostly of wine. They offered burnt sacrifices of animals. They offered their children. They burned their children, sons and daughters. And they offered their bodies, sexual cult prostitution, both male and female. I want to close this evening by a notice about this practice of infanticide with respect to these idols of Jeremiah's world. Offering children to Baal, Moloch, and Chemosh was infanticide, murder of infants, a reprehensible act condemned by the Old Testament and by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. As Jeremiah says, the Lord God said to me, they have forsaken me and built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 19 verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, they have built the high places of Baal to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should commit this abomination to sin. Chapter 32, verse 35 of Jeremiah. One could argue that this idolatrous practice was an obscene act of Devotion, devotion to a God, incinerating your living child by offering it to a deity. 
Nonetheless, however devout an act it may have seemed to be, it was murder. Murder of a child. The most recent issue of the British Journal of Medical Ethics contains an article by two medical ethicists from Melbourne, Australia. Two medical ethicists from Melbourne, Australia, linked to Oxford University in England and linked to the editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics, who is also a professor at Oxford University in England. The co-authors of this article state that, quote, killing a newborn should be permissible in all cases where abortion is permissible, including cases where the newborn is not disabled, unquote. The authors justify their perverse reasoning by arguing that, quote, the moral status of an infant is equivalent to that of a fetus in the sense that both lack the properties that justify the attribution of a right to life to an individual. Both a fetus and a newborn certainly are human beings and potential persons, but neither is a person, in single quotes, in the sense of, and single quotes again, subject of a moral right to life. Closed quotation. You will notice the calculus of moral equivalence operating here. Prenatal infanticide is justified as the abortion of a non-person. By the same token, postnatal infanticide is justified as the killing, that is their word, killing of a non-person. If there ever was a doubt that the right to murder a child in the womb would be extended to the right to murder a newborn out of the womb, these two contemporary medical ethicists and their Oxford University editor have made the equivalence loud and clear. They are advocating this position in the interests of a, and this is their word, a liberal society, quote, unquote. Indeed, a liberal society where the right to premarital sex includes the right to kill the consequence of that sexual act. A liberal society where the right not to be inconvenienced by the responsibility of a baby justifies aborting it. A liberal society where the right of the woman not to be saddled with the financial burden of raising a child consequent upon her becoming pregnant justifies terminating that pregnancy and the life in her womb. A liberal society where the state cannot bear the economic costs of providing for the care of the fetus when born. A liberal culture where a human being in utero has no human rights, no right to life, 
No personhood with legal protection in such a liberal society. Why not kill newborn infants outside the womb, as our medical ethicists argue? For those infants may be an inconvenience, an inconvenience of failed contraception. They may interfere with a woman's personhood and thus be sacrificed on the altar of choice. They may be deemed a financial burden and hence not worth the price of raising up to personhood. They may be defined by the state, by the government, as an economic burden to society and thus expendable. The 21st century defines itself as sophisticated, savvy, enlightened, progressive, liberal is the word. But we find ourselves gripped in the very same paganism that produced the abomination of infanticide for religio-cultural reasons in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. Baal and Moloch and Chemosh are not dead. They are alive and well in the elite circles of modern, liberal, progressive, medical, moralistic ethicists. Immoralistic is the better word. Murderous immoralists devising schemes for abominations that never, ever came into the mind of our loving Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is the reason that we must oppose them with all our mind, heart, and strength. We must oppose such a liberal society, not only in our minds and in our hearts, but with our votes. You cannot sit on the sidelines in this matter. You must be informed, educate yourself, stay alert to the discussions, and then you must vote. And so we call these purveyors of modern murder and infanticide to repent for the sake of their own souls. We call them to repent and believe on God, the Lord, the Lord of Jeremiah and God, the father of the Savior, Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus Christ, the Son of the loving Father and God of Jeremiah, who took the little children, the little babies, into his arms and blessed the infant fruit of the womb. It is midnight in America. You are standing on the brink of a very new world.
If you do not know it, I do not know how to alert you to it. But it is before you. Let us pray. Our Father, you have drawn us away from the brutality, not only of the age of Jeremiah, but the brutality of our own age by sequestering us and saving us and sheltering us in the shadow of the rock who is Christ. This all-gracious and all-merciful and all-loving Redeemer, Redeemer of sinners as vile and objectionable as we are, we confess that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And we see the testimony, even the written declaration of sin in our own day. It grieves us. It grieves us for the sake of those who fly in the face of your holy will and law, how you have made human beings, male and female. We grieve at their hatred of you and pray, O Lord, that you will open their eyes to the light and translate them out of the darkness of the abyss that swallows them up in anger, in bitterness, in death, in vile, loathsome, abominable acts. Lord, deliver them from themselves. And so, Lord, keep us vigilant. Keep us alert. Let us be aware of our role in these days. That we are lights in a dark world. We have the testimony to the life to come. We have forgiveness for sins as our gospel proclamation. There is no sin so great that you cannot forgive it. And so we plead, O Lord, that you would draw our ugly and depraved world out of its wretchedness, out of the endless cycle of death, self-destruction, self-worship, for that is idolatry the ultimate worship of the self and the pleasure of the self. That is the God that bewitches all sinners. Deliver us from such idolatry, O Lord, by Christ your Son, and please hear our prayer, even our prayer for those, for these whom we have mentioned here with his wretched and abominable declarations that they may be smitten and convicted of sin and so delivered from the wrath to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name.